Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled Martyrs. Modern marketing tactics first produced and now feed contemporary culture's obsession for the latest thing. The slogan and label, New and Improved, is a frequent feature in packaging. The opposite was the case in first century Rome. The Eternal City, and really most of the ancient world, was suspicious of anything new and novel, especially when it came to ideas. They had tremendous respect for tradition, believing that what was true had already been discovered and needed to be preserved. Innovation was grudgingly accepted, but only insofar as it did not substantially alter tradition. The religion of the Greeks and Romans was sacrosanct precisely because it was ancient. Judaism, with its fierce devotion to only one God, was incompatible with the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, but it was tolerated by the Romans precisely because it was ancient. Also, while Jews were fiercely loyal to their religion and became violent when attempts were made to convert them to paganism, they were not, as a rule, engaged in making converts of others. Judaism is not, by nature, a proselytizing faith. Christianity's early struggle with Rome began in earnest when Judaism officially denounced the Christians and banished them as a movement from within Judaism. This took place shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Until that time, followers of Jesus were considered as a kind of reform movement within Judaism. But toward the end of the first century, Rome realized that the Jews had divorced themselves from the Christians. Christianity was something new a religious novelty, and so under suspicion. And whereas Judaism tended not to proselytize, Christians couldn't help winning others to their faith. This brought Christianity into close scrutiny by the authorities. The more they investigated, the more concerned they grew. Like the Jews, Christians believed in one God, but their God had become a man. Christians had no idols, practiced no sacrifices, and built no temples. These were yet more religious innovations that fired suspicion. Christians seemed to be so reductionist in their practices that they were suspected of being, get this, atheists. As we saw in the previous episode, the paganism practiced by most people of the empire in the first and second centuries wasn't so much a heartfelt devotion to the gods as it was out of a sense of civic duty. Respect the gods by visiting their temples with the proper sacrifices and offerings or suffer their wrath. Well, every new convert to the Christians meant one less pagan throwing their appeasing bones to the watchful and increasingly upset gods. People began to worry that the growing neglect of the gods would lead to trouble. And indeed, whenever a drought, flood, fire, or some other catastrophe ensued, it was inevitably blamed on those atheists, the Christians. Christians to the lions became a frequent solution to the ills of the world. The concern of the pagans was ill-attributed, but well-founded. Not because their gods were angry, but because in some places, so many had become Christians that the pagan temples were nearly empty. Acts 19 tells us that this happened in Ephesus, and a letter from the governor of Bithynia in the early 2nd century repeats the concern. This led to a growing call for punishment of the Christians. A few would be rounded up and put to death to prove to the gods the earnestness of the pagans to appease them. Other factors that encouraged hostility towards believers was their secrecy. 
A description of Christians by Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia to the Emperor Trajan in AD 111, is enlightening. Pliny had already executed some Christians based on little more than their scandalous reputation. He'd given them an opportunity to recant, but when they refused, Pliny saw this rebuff of his mercy as a provocative stubbornness that was worthy of punishment. But after a flurry of executions, Pliny had second thoughts. Was the mere reputation of Christians dangerous enough to warrant their arrest and trial? And so he wrote his friend, the Emperor Trajan, asking for advice. Here's a quote from Pliny's letter. After describing some ex-Christians who had recanted their faith, Pliny gives their report on what their practice had been when they were still Christians. Quote, They affirmed the whole of their guilt was that they were in the habit of meeting on a fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deeds, no fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it, after which it was their custom to separate, then reassembled later to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind." A little later in the letter, Pliny adds that to verify this report, he secured through the torture of two slaves that this was an accurate description of Christian meetings and that nothing more needed to be added. Pliny called Christianity a depraved and excessive superstition. The Emperor Trajan replied to Pliny's request for guidance on how he wanted the growing Christian crisis in Bithynia handled. Trajan replied, quote, You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those that had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. Though seemingly harmless to us, it was Pliny's reference to the Christians meeting before dawn that proved a problem. While it looks to us a commendable reference to their diligence and earnestness, well, it was highly suspicious to Romans. As a rule, meetings during the dark hours were forbidden. Day was the time for meetings. To meet at night was automatically suspect. No good could come of it. You met at night because, well, you had something to hide. So why did Christians meet before daylight if it raised suspicion? The answer lies in the composition of their fellowship. That is, who was attending? For the most part, they were commoners and the poor who had jobs that they had to begin early. The only time available to meet was before the workday began. These early meetings of the church were only open to Christians. Secrecy tends to breed gossip, and so it didn't take long till wild rumors were going around about the abominable things that the Christians must be doing. Their communal meal, called the agape or the love feast, was recast by gossip as a wild and debauched orgy. Communion was said to be ritual cannibalism, And the real shocker was that when Christians met, social distinctions like rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, were subsumed under an appalling equality. Many critics of Christianity saw this as a dangerous subversion of the natural order. 
Christians were cast as radical revolutionaries out to turn the entire world upside down. For a society that lived in constant fear of a slave uprising, anything seen as encouraging slaves to think independently was deemed perilous. Don't forget that for the Romans, the three servile wars, the last and most perilous, led by the famous Spartacus, were still potent in the collective memory, though it had been over a century since their revolt. Another source of trouble for Christians was their Jewish origin. Even though Judaism worked hard to distance itself from the followers of Christ, in the mind of the average Roman, the church was a Jewish thing. In many places, Jews were the main accusers of Christians to the authorities, but this failed to dislodge Christians from their Jewish roots. The bloody and troubling Jewish wars of the first and second centuries created great hostility between Romans and Jews, which spilled over onto the Christians. During the second and third centuries, believers were arrested and executed for no worse crime than being accused of being a Christian. Hauled before a judge, they were given the opportunity to recant. They could do so by invoking the names of some of the pagan deities, offering a sacrifice to the image of the emperor, and then cursing Christ. If they refused this threefold evidence of being pagan, they were led off to execution. One story is illustrative. In the mid-2nd century, during the reign of the emperor Antoninus Pius, a woman became a Christian. Marital problems led to her divorce. Resenting her, the ex-husband accused her of being a Christian. She was arrested, along with her pastor, for being a co-conspirator with her and causing the changes that had caused the divorce. The pastor's name was Ptolemaeus. The jailer was cruel and tried to force Ptolemaeus to turn from his faith. Ptolemaeus resisted, and the day of his trial arrived. The judge, Urbicus, put it straight to him. Are you a Christian? Ptolemaeus admitted that he was. Urbicus pronounced him guilty, and Roman justice being swift he was led off to immediate execution. As he was being led away, a spectator, Lucius by name, rose to speak. He challenged Urbicus's decision. Lucius asked, Why did you pass such a sentence? Was this man convicted of a crime? Is he an adulterer, a murderer, a robber? All he did was confess that he was a Christian. The judge replied, It seems that you are also a Christian. Lucius answered, Yes, I am. Urbicus had the guard seize him and haul him off to be executed along with Ptolemaeus. At this, a third man rose, issuing a similar challenge. When Urbicus asked if he also was a believer, the man admitted both his faith and disbelief that death could ensue for no more reason than identifying with a name. But the point is this. Urbicus believed that he was well within his authority to execute all three of these men for no more reason than that they claimed to be Christians. That story, duplicated thousands of times throughout the empire during the 2nd and 3rd centuries, drives home the fact that Christianity was poorly understood by the pagan world. There's no sure way to know how many believers were put to death during the first three centuries. Rome didn't follow a consistent policy of persecution. Some emperors were lenient, while others practiced virulent opposition. Ten of the emperors enforced an official policy of oppression and persecution. From Nero in AD 64 to the worst under Diocletian and Galerius in the opening years of the 4th century. And even though some emperors endorsed opposition to Christianity, their policies were rarely empire-wide. It was up to the provincial governors to implement the rule. Many simply ignored it, seeing it as bad policy. 
Though estimating the number of martyrs is difficult, we can set it somewhere between 1 and 3 million over a period of about 250 years. Despite the threat of death, the church continued to grow. As one oft-quote church father put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. While the authorities tended to remain somewhat ignorant of what Christians believed, many of the common people discovered what it was from conversation with them and found it attractive. More than attractive, it was convincing, compelling, persuasive. So they also came to faith, knowing that doing so might very well lead to the ultimate test. As the years went by and Christians were made the object of public shame by using them for entertainment in the gladiatorial games, more and more began seeing their neighbors and friends on the sand, waiting to be ripped apart by wild beasts. It became personal, and pagans who knew the martyrs to be level-headed, reasonable people of solid moral standing began to question the policy of Rome to hunt down such people. Slowly but surely, a sea change began to swing public opinion away from persecution. By the dawn of the 4th century, sympathy had eased the hatred of Christians, whose resolute faith in the face of prolonged suffering had recast many of them as heroic. Shifting back in time now to the late 1st century, let's take a look at three church leaders who followed immediately after the apostles, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Polycarp. These three come from a group of church leaders known as the Apostolic Fathers. Toward the end of the first century, the passing of the original apostles created a problem. Who would now lead the church? Christians understood Jesus as the true head of the church, but his lead was expressed through his direct disciples and those who'd been witnesses to his resurrection. Though recurring persecution was a consistent theme, the church continued to grow. Who would guide it after the apostles? A group known as the Church Fathers provided that crucial next phase of leadership. Though Jesus warned his followers against giving any man the role of being a spiritual authority in contest with God, the label Father was given to elders and leaders as a term of endearment and affection. The Apostolic Fathers weren't apostles. They were just, you know, apostolic. Or I'll make up a word and say that they were apostolish. This came of their being the followers and students of the original apostles who enjoyed a close relationship with them. The writings of the fathers reveals a remarkable devotion to the Jewish scriptures of the Tanakh, what Christians now refer to as the Old Testament. Reflecting the influence of the original apostles, the fathers understood Christianity not so much as a new religion, but as the fulfillment of the faith of the Jewish patriarchs and prophets. They took this as a given so there's little attempt to define new doctrine in their writing. Their purpose was more to provide edification, correction, and comfort. We could say that their work was devotional in flavor. It was pastoral, seeking to bolster the hope, faith, and practical holiness of those that it was addressed to. The Apostolic Fathers served at a time when the church was growing dramatically and provided a radical alternative to the tired paganism that still dominated but was slowly losing its grip on the Roman world. Their writing often honored martyrdom, occasionally elevating celibacy, and laid great emphasis on baptism, which the early church used as the singular mark for identifying as a follower of Jesus. The first apostolic father that we'll consider is Clement of Rome. Clement was born about AD 30, 
and served as the pastor of the church at Rome for the last nine years of his life, dying in the year 100. Paul mentions a Clement in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Philippians, and there's a good chance that this is the same man. Though he's listed in the official records of the church at Rome as the second or third pope, that early in church history, there simply was no pope. He was the pastor of the church there. Clement is best known for the letter that he sent the Corinthian church dealing with some of the very same problems that the apostle Paul spoke to in his correspondence with Corinth. The Corinthian church was fractured into warring camps that Clement tried to reconcile by reminding them of the priority of love along with the call to patience and humility. What's notable about Clement's letter is the strong emphasis that he placed on the need for Christians to honor and comply with their spiritual leaders as a way to maintain unity. Clement's letter to the Corinthians is the earliest piece of Christian literature outside of the New Testament. For that reason, it's of great importance to scholars because it gives us an idea of the mindset of Christian leaders and their view of the emerging faith. Clement quotes the Old Testament often, He also makes numerous allusions to the writings of the Apostle Paul, revealing how influential and well-accepted Paul's letters were even at this early date. In his insistence that believers honor their spiritual leaders, he bases his appeal on a line of reasoning, the subtext of which points to a widely accepted spiritual principle, and it was this, that pastors and church leaders had received their authority from the apostles who'd received their authority from Christ. Much later, the church at Rome would greatly expand on that idea of succession. But nothing in Clement's letter gives substance to the idea that the church at Rome had jurisdictional power over other churches or over the faith in general. The next father that we'll consider is Ignatius, considered a giant among the apostolic fathers because of his martyrdom. Though the pastor of the church at Antioch in Syria, he was arrested and taken to Rome. During the journey, Ignatius passed through several cities where he was allowed to address the believers. In about AD 110, he wrote letters to six of these in which he stressed unity and how to combat heresy. The heresy that Ignatius spoke of was an early form of Gnosticism. The remedy for dealing with heresy and the surest support for unity, Ignatius said, was the presence of a strong pastor who would provide spiritual leadership. It's a fairly reliable tradition that Ignatius was a student of the Apostle John and was affirmed in his ministry by him. Ignatius was then martyred in Rome in the Colosseum by being fed to the beasts during the reign of Trajan in AD 108. What makes Ignatius' writing important is his emphasis on the role of a single elder pastor as the one to lead a local church. While there are hints at this in the New Testament, There's also a picture of multiple elders who jointly share leadership. It's more by inference that's drawn from Paul and Timothy's ministries that one may see the emergence of a lead elder who becomes what we might call the senior pastor. Ignatius' letter spells that out and makes a strong case for it. He called the elders and deacons to follow the lead of that one among them that God had set his anointing on to be the leader of the church. The third apostolic father that we'll look at sounds like a plastic fish. Polycarp's story is fascinating. He also was a student of the Apostle John, who became the lead pastor at Smyrna, one of the cities to receive one of the seven letters that was dictated by Jesus in the opening chapters of Revelation. Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippian church about AD 110, 
that's filled with quotations from the Old Testament and references to several other books that would later be included in the New Testament canon. Polycarp's reliance on these books as describing the norms and beliefs of the Christians indicates the early acceptance of those books that would later be made a part of the Bible. His use of them helped later Christians decide which books ought to be part of the New Testament. Polycarp was arrested and put to death in A.D. 155. The manner of his death was so exemplary that he was honored for generations as an example of martyrdom. When officials came to arrest him, he welcomed them into his house, asked if they'd like something to eat, and while they enjoyed a meal, went into another room where he composed himself through prayer. When he rejoined the officers, his kind treatment shamed them in the task that they'd been assigned. One of the many remarkable things about Polycarp was his advanced age. At 86, he was quite old for those times. At his execution, the magistrate pleaded with him, based on his age, to recant and save himself. Earlier, I said that recanting Christians had to go through a three-step process to prove their sincerity, but at Polycarp's trial, the official tried to make it easier for him and told him simply to say, away with the atheists, meaning the Christians, who, because they believed in only one God, were considered godless compared to the pagans who worshipped dozens of deities. But Polycarp knew the official's intent and, and pointed at the crowd that had gathered to watch him burn, saying, away with the atheists. <laughs> when the magistrate pressed pleading with Polycarp to recant his faith, he replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and never once did he wrong me. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Come, bring what you will. Well, the official couldn't believe that his offer of leniency was being rejected and grew more stern. He warned, Bless Caesar. Polycarp replied, Since you vainly strive to make me bless Caesar, pretending you don't know my real character, hear me clearly. I am a Christian. (laughs) If you desire to learn of the Christian faith, assign me a day and you shall hear. Now enraged, the proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Polycarp replied, bring them on. The magistrate fumed, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent, I will tame you with fire. Polycarp said, You threaten me with a fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished? But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, that, that you're ignorant of. Why do you delay? Come, do what you please. At that, the wood that had been heaped around him was set ablaze. The story of Polycarp's martyrdom became a popular tale that Christians shared for the next few centuries, as countless more faced the prospect of dying for the faith. Truth be told, a perverse veneration of martyrdom took root in the church that saw not a few aspire to being put to death. When martyrs were elevated as heroes, well, it wasn't long before some aspired to the station of hero and considered martyrdom a price worth paying. Sadly, they weren't dying for Christ so much as for their own reputation and fame. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.